Suffrage for women spanned seven decades, a time span in the United States that ranged from the California Gold Rush to the American Civil War to World War I and the addition of 18 new states to the Union. While we talk about these changes in terms of wars and battles and victories, there were less bombastic ways that the principles and benefits of suffrage were communicated, and a fair amount was served up with food. Join us today as we leaf through the rich history of suffragist cookbooks. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hello, Kim. How are you? I'm super well. Thank you. How are you and where are you? I am really good. And we are in Memphis, Tennessee today in a huge park. I am staring out the front window of the van looking at an entire gaggle of children. So (laughs) if you hear any giggling, screaming, or laughing, it's probably the kids out front. Well, that sounds like a fun time. Have you managed to try any fried bologna and peanut butter sandwiches yet? Isn't that uh, Elvis's signature dish? I think banana and peanut butter. Oh, banana and peanut butter. I thought bologna factored in somehow, but I could be wrong. We'll have to check. I have not tried that yet. We just got here this afternoon, so we're going to do a little bit of um, food adventuring in a little bit, Mm. and I'll let you know. Mm, Awesome. Yeah, folks, if you haven't subscribed yet, don't forget to check out our As We Eat Going Places channel on YouTube. We have some tasty treats from the road to share with you there, so tune in. But today we're going to talk about some other stuff. We're going to talk about suffrage and women and food. And I'd like to set the table, as it were, for our discussion today, starting off with what life was like in the United States for the average woman in the mid-19th century and how conversation and subsequent efforts about women's suffrage came to pass and how suffragists used food to get their message out. This is a really toothsome tale to tell, so very excited to be talking about this today. To start, we're going to go back, all the way back to 1848, because this was the year that there was a significant, organized, concerted effort to raise public consciousness for the rights of women in the United States. I'm talking about the Seneca Falls Convention of July 1848. It was at this momentous event that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and many others publicly called for women's equality and suffrage. Uh, And this was the moment that it really started to hit our collective consciousness, as I've said. This was a topic worth discussing and exploring and getting some political action around. So at that moment in time, there are 30 states in the Union, with Wisconsin being the brand newest, the Mexican-American War is concluding, and that ultimately brought most of the states in the Southwest as we know them now. And it was at that time still legal to enslave people. So we're talking the slave trade, buying, selling slaves. 
There is a large-scale famine happening in Ireland as a result of a potato blight, and that also caused a global level event of immigration. And if you missed it, I do recommend tuning into our As We Eat episode 15 on potatoes for that history because it had a major impact on the world, including the United States. Also, at that time in 1848, the average life expectancy for a white person is less than 40 years and only 23 years for a black person. Can you imagine? Like, average. You're average. So people younger than that are dying, and it's just insane. And infant mortality was also very high. For every 1,000 births, approximately 215 white babies and 340 black babies would die. And then the Native American population also incredibly broadly displaced or killed due to manifest destiny expansion out westward. Womanhood at this time is largely defined by domestic work done in a home or in a farm or working in factories, doing production sewing work sometimes in the home. So uh, women were working, although not in the very typical way that we tend to look at industrialized work. Food is being primarily made from scratch in the home. Cooking techniques, family recipes are pretty much being learned by cooking alongside other women in the home. You would learn something from your mother, from your grandmother. Foodstuffs are being stored in pantries, root cellars, and ice houses because the refrigerator had not been invented. It was not available. Light in the home comes from oil lamps and candles. And wood or coal-fired stoves and ovens are what you use to cook your foods. And these do not have set temperatures. There are anecdotes about women sticking hands in the oven and how long it took you to feel pain was your way of figuring out how warm your oven and your stove was. Food supplies are very limited, and it's mostly constrained by geography. So what is available around you in a radius, you're not seeing a whole lot of imports coming from one side of the country to another because the first transcontinental railroad didn't even begin construction until 1863. And canned food is not widely available. Home canning itself is rudimentary. The uh, glass jars that we commonly associate uh, with canning have not yet been invented or not available. And can openers themselves aren't even going to be invented until 1870. You might remember that from one of our kitchen technology episodes. Efforts to codify food, health, and safety don't truly begin until the U.S. Department of Agriculture begins safety studies in 1902. Ultimately, this is going to lead to the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act and the creation of the Food and Drug Administration. It was kind of a Russian roulette about whether the food you were eating was going to kill you or not. And if you weren't sourcing your food, say, from a local farm, you really didn't know. You might be getting milk that was contaminated because pasteurization is not a very common thing at this point either. So I'm hoping I'm making a clear point here that by our 2022 standards, life then was dangerous, brutal, and really hard. And that's if you were lucky enough to have agency and freedom. It's not difficult to see why women wanted to have some political power commensurate with the efforts that they were putting into being a part of society. Many women fought like hellcats to earn the right to vote, and they did that through rallies, civil actions, and some much quieter, less obvious means that we're going to get into. Ultimately, this battle has played out across seven decades, spanned the Civil War, World War I, before it played out at the federal level with ratification of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, 
It unfolded around kitchen and dining room tables, in tea parlors and cafeterias, and within state senates. The 19th Amendment was ratified on August 18, 1920, and states explicitly that, quote, the rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So let's talk about food and how cooking and serving it helped to recruit people to the cause. The suffrage movement advocates had to contend with all kinds of backlash and resistance to change, faced everything from arrest to character assassination. One of the most potent tools in destabilizing any kind of political action is making its activists look crazy, unstable, and degenerate. And suffragists were charged with uh, wanting to destroy home life with all kinds of bad notions, but mostly wanting to destroy a home life. And to fight that perception, political activists used a still hunt strategy they put into play to help deliver rhetoric for suffrage in ways that was less militant as, say, a parade, convention, civil actions, and civil disobedience. And the still hunt strategy is a phrase borrowed from hunting by Oregon suffragist Abigail Scott Dunaway to describe efforts to persuade support without using direct confrontation. So serving and eating food was a really potent way to introduce suffrage with reassurances that domestic skills and harmony would remain undamaged when women earned the right to vote. So books full of recipes, tips, and recommendations to build and sustain family life were really important fundraising tools, but they also created a space and a mechanism by which to disseminate information about suffrage aside from public speeches and pamphlets. And I want to put a little more context in here because cookbooks were pretty uncommon before the Civil War, but they did start to gain major ground in the 1860s. Mrs. Beaton's book of household management was first published in 1861, and that was renowned uh, as being a useful tool for kind of creating and perpetuating family life. And the first known cookbook by a Black author titled A Domestic Cookbook Containing a Careful Selection of Useful Receipts for the Kitchen was published by Melinda Russell in Paw Paw, Michigan in 1866. So it was with great intention and forethought that suffragist cookbooks started appearing around the country. And the very first was The Woman's Suffrage Cookbook, launched in Boston by the Massachusetts Women's Suffrage Association on December 13, 1886, and many more such suffrage cookbooks appeared in the following decades. Leigh, I'd love to hear what you can tell me about these. When we're talking about the impact of the suffrage cookbooks, it's important to note from the time that the first cookbook was published until the last suffrage cookbook was published, it was over a 30-year period. So there was a lot that was happening. As you mentioned, the first cookbook was printed in 1886, and the last one was published in 1915. The cookbooks were published by several different groups across the country, so it represented each of those regions and those groups. We've talked a lot about community cookbooks and how they can actually be literature in their own right. And these suffrage cookbooks are no different. They give us a glimpse into the past in ways that other pieces of literature couldn't especially into the lives of women at any given time, and especially 
especially these group of women who had chosen to fight for the right to vote. There were several other things that they could have chosen to rally around, like the fact that men were still allowed to beat them. But they chose suffrage as this pivotal movement that they knew would move them forward. The first cookbook, the the, um, suffrage cookbook, was published in Boston, as you'd mentioned, and it was sold as a fundraiser. There were 150 contributors. Most of them were from New England, but there were some from Washington, D.C., Chicago, Philadelphia. And the one that I found just intriguing because this is my home state, one of the contributors was from Billings, Montana. It's fascinating to think how this woman clear across the country was able to find out about this cookbook and actually get a recipe in the cookbook itself. Yeah. The recipes were submitted by women for the most part, and the recipes were written in this narrative form. This is the first cookbook that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this narrative form of cookbook writing. There is very little description into method. There aren't precise amounts. Mm-hmm. You get measurements like dessert spoons, <laughs> teacups full, a peck of tomatoes, Cooking times aren't generally given and temperatures are really vague. Like you mentioned, it is just slow oven, a medium oven, or a hot oven. And you do that by literally sticking your (laughs) arm into the oven to see how long you can hold your hand in there to determine what that temperature is. And the cooking times, really, these women just knew. It was an innate skill that they had. Now, in the first cookbook from Boston, there is one recipe that was written in the form of a poem. And it's for a breakfast dish. It was submitted by Elizabeth W. Stanton, but we don't think that she was related to Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And it starts out, cut smoothly from a wheaten loaf, 10 slices good and true, and brown them nicely or the coals as you for toast would do. And then it goes on to describe how to put this dish together, but it's done in this poetic fashion. And I think it's just a super clever way to write a recipe And it really speaks to how these types of publications were a way not only to express individuality and the message of suffrage, but there was a creativity Mm. behind them. And we talked about that in our last episode, how it was important to have this creative outlet. And I just thought that this poem, this this recipe poem spoke so well to that. Another thing that was very interesting about this cookbook was the way that the women identified themselves. During this time, and really even into the 1950s and the 1960s, if you look at community cookbooks, you will notice that the naming convention, especially of married women, is very interesting. It is Mrs. followed by their husband's name. So Mm -hmm. Henry Ford's wife would have been referred to as Mrs. Henry Ford. But in this cookbook, these women submitted the recipes under their first name. So Mrs. Henry Ford became Mrs. Clara Ford. And it seemed to indicate a conscious decision, whether it was by these women or the editors, to represent themselves as individuals, which really was what this whole movement was about. We are individuals that not only 
require the right to vote, but the right to be who we are. To be a separate whole individual with her own mind and her own agency. I keep using that term, but I think it's really appropriate here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm going to apologize right now because there are like five cars (laughs) that are started around me and running back and forth. There's a little bit of music happening next door, too. So people, I I apologize for the extra (laughs) sound. Also, there were some contributors who would have been considered celebrity status at the time, like Julia Ward Howe, who contributed a recipe to the Boston cookbook. And if you don't remember her from history class, she wrote the poem, The Battle Hymn of the Republic, which was the unofficial song of the Union Army during the Civil War, and then was a popular song for both the suffrage and the civil rights movements. There was also Abigail Scott Dunaway, who you had mentioned before. She was a noted writer. Clemence Lozier was a physician. I just find Mm -hmm. that fascinating. You have a physician in this time and space. Frances Willard, she was the first dean of women at Northwestern University. Jack London contributed to the Pittsburgh cookbook. There were men who also contributed to these cookbooks, which I just, I applaud them. I think it's amazing that they were willing to step up. Like you said, these women were really vilified in a lot of circles. So anybody who stood up for them also bore that wrath. Absolutely. Jane Addams, she was the author of The Yellow Wallpaper. And if you have not read that, you have to read it. It's an amazing introspection into mental Mm -hmm. health. Harvey Wiley, who was considered the first father of the Food and Drug Administration, you talked about that, that over the course of this whole suffrage movement, we moved from a very arcane way to think about our food Mm -hmm. and nutrition into having a Food and Drug Administration. Anna Shaw, who was a doctor and a Methodist preacher, and I love her contribution especially. And it went like this. I have sent one recipe to a cookbook. And that was a direction for driving a nail, as it has always been declared that women do not know how to drive (laughs) nails. It speaks to this duality that was happening and still happens. We've got these women who know how to drive nails. And then we have these women who know how to bake a cake in a coal-fired oven. Many of the cookbooks also had pages of quotes that were eminent opinions on women's suffrage. And the quotes came from a lot of different places. There were quotes from Abraham Lincoln and James Mm. Garfield. There was one that I think was the most potent, and it was from Clara Barton, who was the founder of the Red Cross. And she's also known as the angel of the battlefield for tending injured soldiers during the Civil War. And it reads, quote, when you were weak and I was strong, I toiled for you. Now you are strong and I am weak. Because of my work for you, I ask your aid. I ask the ballot for myself and my sex. As I stood by you, I pray you stand by me and mine. Clara Barton to the soldiers. Yeah. I just thought, okay, yay, Abraham. Yay, James Garfield. But man, Clara, Clara. We salute you. We salute you. The Washington cookbook, which is the state of Washington, not Washington, D.C., had almost... 200 pages in it and hundreds of contributors. This cookbook was published later on, but it had chapters that included household department, 
hints for beauty and hygiene. So we're starting to talk about hygiene mm-hmm. and, and beauty in women's circles. Food for the sick, still again, we had a lot of these cookbooks talked about how to care for invalids and convalescents. So food for the sick, sailors' recipes, and mountaineers' chapter. And if you're from the Pacific Northwest, Seattle specifically, you understand what a strong group the mountaineers are. <laughs> So I loved the fact that this Washington cookbook had this Mountaineers chapter in it. It was authored by three different people. There was a chef who was in the Mountaineers, a woman who was in the Mountaineers, and another gentleman, and I don't recall who it was. But I loved the fact that they included the Mountaineers Mm -hmm. in here. And it's just a great example of how these books not only stood for a specific purpose, but they were celebrating the local and regional cultures at the same time. In this cookbook, the Washington cookbook, there was even a section on how to test a dolphin to see if it was safe to eat. (laughs) So towards the end of the suffrage movement, the cookbooks didn't contain the tracks that the earlier cookbooks had. So there wasn't as much of the political part that the earlier cookbooks had in them. Um, The recipes were pretty straightforward. Like you'd mentioned, we'd gone through... At this point, several years, recipes had started to be codified. We were starting to use methods Mm -hmm. that were very systematic. We had refrigerators. We had electric ovens. We had lights Mm -hmm. that weren't burning oil or fat. So as we move through this movement, we start to see those changes within the cookbooks as well. With each of the cookbook's publications, the recipes were really products of the era. They mirrored the times. Many of the recipes in the cookbooks could be found in popular cookbooks at the time. We were now starting to see cookbooks Mm -hmm. being published. The earlier suffrage cookbooks included fruits and vegetables that were in season and readily available. During the First World War, the cookbook sellers, because these were used to raise funds, they had to pivot a little bit in their pitches because a lot of these recipes recipes included ingredients that were not available during World War I or were very expensive at that time. So they had to create this new narrative around the cookbook in order to keep selling them. And then as canned foods, as you mentioned, came into vogue, the cookbook started to include more recipes that included canned soups and canned vegetables rather than the fresh ones. And then as the science around food and health developed, cooking methods and times changed. I always was amazed and intrigued by these cookbooks that literally called to have green beans boiled for an hour and a half. (laughs) Actually, that idea of cooking those foods for so long came from this concept that boiled foods were much easier to digest. Mm. And it was much better for you because your digestive system didn't have to work so hard. So that's where those boiling for those crazy amounts of time came from. But they were now replaced by this idea of saving nutrients and not boiling them Mm -hmm. to death. One of the things that I found really interesting through all of these cookbooks was this idea of the suffrage cake. And we talked about the importance of cake in episode 36, which was our From Betty Crocker to Feminist Foods. During the suffrage movement, any cake that was baked in support of the movement was deemed a suffrage cake. So you had cakes in these cookbooks that had 11 eggs that were called suffrage cakes, <laughs> as well as cakes that included three eggs and a half a cup of butter. And then when we enter World War I, Mrs. Pleasant J. Mills 
Wouldn't you just love to have the name? Absolutely. (laughs) Hello. I'm Pleasant. Nice to meet you. I'm Pleasant. (laughs) But anyway, Mrs. Pleasant J. Mills, again, her first name being used here, developed a suffrage cake that was eggless, butterless, and milkless to address the food conservation issues that were being discussed at the time. And she actually sold this recipe for 10 cents a piece to help support the suffrage movement. Wow. Yeah. So to help you celebrate Women's History Month, we're going to include a couple of cake recipes in the As We Eat Journal article that even the most militant of suffragists (laughs) would be proud to serve. Indeed. I love this exploration of cookbooks because they're, this whole topic has, for me, given rise to new additional thought about the world in which I live now, noting how far we've come, not to borrow that Virginia Slim's you've come a long way, baby, but it is effectively that idea. I grew up in a house full of cookbooks. I grew up in a house full of food and equipment and ways of exploring the world of food. All I had to do was be curious. I could open any book I wanted and learn something new. And I also had the time and the permission to experiment in the kitchen, something that I don't think is always universally true. And so right. I, I have been thinking a lot this month based on the, the reading that we did in From Betty Crocker to Feminist Food Studies and also in All Stirred Up, as we've both been talking about in these past few episodes, about what cookbooks are and what they mean to us. They're more than just a set of instructions. And the thing that really struck me when I was reading the From Betty Crocker to Feminist Food Studies book was that they make the point that recipes and cookbooks can be read as literature. And that was something that was true, but I hadn't thought of before. That in particular, linguist Colleen Cotter believes that recipes are narrative forms and that particularly recipes found in community cookbooks function as instruction to an extent, but then also they construct community by defining who's in and who's out of that community. Yeah, I love the idea of reading these cookbooks as literature. I agree with you. I think that it does define a community. It does tell you who is in, who is out, who values what they do within the home, Mm. what they value within what they do within the home. And the thing that I love about a lot of these cookbooks is that you had very similar recipes that were presented by different people that were all included. They were just different enough and they were written in their voice that you got a sense of who they were. Yeah. One of the things I think goes unexpressed when we talk about food is the sheer individuality of how we cook and how we eat and what that communicates to other people. I'm thinking of a recipe example of, oh, this recipe calls for a lot of pepper. That person is liberal with flavor. Somebody who likes flavor and heavily spiced foods might be creative and offbeat and wacky and unrestrained versus someone who comes up with a dish that has a very clean sensible palate might be seen as measured and very straightforward in their personality, not just what's on the plate. Right. And I, I love that there's this individualistic identity that comes through with food that even the same dish, the same recipe made by several different people will always have something unique about it that reflects its creator and its owner. 
And so pulling yeah. these recipes together into these community cookbooks not only helps to define this community, but it also, it includes. You, you suddenly find yourself and you're reading as literature, and you're starting to meet these other people that are in this space with you. And you begin to form yes. this sense of belonging that you as an individual fit into this community as well. And I think that's what was so successful about these suffrage cookbooks was that not only were they ways with this, you know, still hunt strategy of being able to persuade, but also yes. to include. Yes, totally agreed. And one of the things that I didn't talk about that you just brought up was these cookbooks were used for fundraising, but they were also used as inroads to the antis. So it was a way for them to present the idea that, that these women still wanted to care for their families care for the people who were sick. There were there were some quips that were humorous. So that it was a way for them to say, here we yeah. are, make the recipes, find out a little bit more about us, and then let's talk about the suffrage movement and why it's important mm -hmm. to us and what your fears and concerns are about it. Because food is that equalizer. This is why food is part mm -hmm. of diplomacy. We've talked about that often on over the past, you know, the, the idea of the diplomatic yeah. dinner and introducing a food and a food culture as a precursor to, hey, we all have to eat. <laughs> we eat to live, and but we also eat for pleasure. There's a huge amount of that in food, as we, I think we all could agree. And so it becomes a diplomat. This food, this cookbook, these dishes open that door at the dinner table and across the community across the region and as across an entire country and beyond because suffrage was happening in Great Britain. Finland. Yeah, all over the world. We're, we're being very yeah. particular about the United States because because this episode would be days long if, if we were to include absolutely everything. But yeah. I just, I so respect what they did because it also laid groundwork for other movements with political backing such as labor, especially agricultural labor and the idea of what we eat is personal. And these are personal issues as well. And that you could use food to to be a conversation starter. I was very excited to read about this still hunt strategy. So I'd like to bring this information to the As We Journal later this month. So keep an eye out for that. And let's continue to have these conversations about what food and the all the fun things surrounding food mean to all of us. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this episode with a friend and review and rate it on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And I understand that Spotify is adding a new review function as well. So Five stars, please. Ready, please. As I've said, we also publish the As We Eat journal on Substack, and we would be super honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, and many travel stops. And there are four subscription tiers, so we're sure you're going to find one that's perfect for you. And all this is at asweeat.substack.com. Thank you to our subscribers. You mean the world to us. 
And just in case you weren't aware, you've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our multi-platform storytelling project exploring how food connects, defines, and inspires. <laughs>